Hey everybody, this is Charles Hayne. Welcome to another week of the Week in Film Tech. My apologies for missing last week. I, I don't know if I could say this on a podcast or not, but why not? My baby daughter was home from daycare with a virus, which meant that half the days I was home with her and the other half my wife was home with her, and that just, I couldn't do a podcast last week. But we're back this week. All of the news that you missed out on while you were out on actual film sets making movies. So we have two news items this week. We've got a new hard drive from CalDigit that I think is really interesting and should be on people's radar. We've got the new mix book from DMG Lumiere and Roscoe. We don't have a gear cage because I didn't get to play anything with this week. But I do have two Ahey professors, one of which was just somebody asking a question on Twitter that I'm going to answer even though they didn't ask it to me, and then someone else asked me a question directly. So, two headlines, two hey professors, all that on the week in film tech. So, our first story this week. Oh, before I even get to our story, I just want to remind everybody that Aperture, you guys all know the lighting manufacturer Aperture, they make very indie-friendly lights. The Aperture lights, very popular, 300D, 600D, which I haven't played with yet, but I'm excited about. They make a nice spotlight unit. They are having an contest. There are six regions for this contest. You're only competing with the other people in your region, which is a good thing. And they have a whole bunch of cool judges. John Miller from Hive. We've got Jared Land, who now runs Red completely solo. The founder, Jim Gennard, retired. Jared's been running Red for a while, I believe. Um, And you've got a whole bunch of other cool judges and a whole bunch of chances to win prizes. I don't cover a lot of contests on this site, but there's two reasons I cover this one. One, no entry fee. Uh, if you guys remember, there's a bunch of famous contests that have had really high entry fees. There was a f- one a few years ago, Thunder Funder, which had a $300 entry fee, actually won that contest, which is a story for another time, what happened when I won Thunder Funder. I should write that article or do that podcast. And two, part of this contest with Aperture is behind-the-scenes lighting diagrams, and I love behind-the-scenes lighting diagrams. I love being able to look at a shot and be like, oh, you had lights here and there, and then I look at the diagram, and I'm like, oh, I didn't even notice you had a light here, and it's giving that sparkle or whatever. And uh, I love it when I read American Cinematographer. I love it when I read, uh, when I watch behind-the-scenes videos, and I really love it uh, that they are encouraging, requiring it, in fact, for this contest. I think it's super cool, so way to go for with that. Apertures like this location contest. I think you've got a week left. I think the deadline is November 11th. But look, you're listening to this Thursday morning. You could go out with your friends this Saturday and shoot something and submit it, and maybe win an 8K Red package or some other lights or all sorts of stuff. So don't plug a lot of contests, but I think that one is worth plugging. Make a cool behind-the-scenes explaining what you did um, this weekend. Contests are complicated, but I'm going to be honest. I mean, I submitted for Slender Funder. That was a mess. But I have a lot of friends who have won a contest, and it's led to good things for their career. Not every contest is going to take you amazing places. But, you know, you enter a contest. You go. You get an award. You meet people at the screening. Those kind of things. Like, it's part of the deal. So, like, yeah, if you're looking at this weekend and you're like, I have legit nothing to do this weekend, go do a Light This Location video and submit it. It could be the great one. I think, I just checked with Aperture about this. I think there's only, like, a thousand entrants per region, or on average. Obviously, I'm going to suspect the North American Europe regions are very full. But whatever, even if it's, like, 4,000 have applied, put your thing in. Why not? It's, it's good to keep your chops going and, and do BTSs. All right, so let's rock it onto our headlines this week. Our top headline this week, and I just have to talk about it because it's weird and niche and cool, and I enjoy the weird niche cool things of the world, is DMG Lumiere Roscoe. So DMG Lumiere was a lighting company. They were bought by Roscoe. They sort of keep the brands. I mean, I feel like the brands have totally merged, but I still think of them as DMG Lumiere. Roscoe made gels. DMG Lumiere bought lights, made lights. You like they're calling the lights the Roscoe mix, but I think of them as the DMG Lumiere mix. 
Maybe I'm just old. Anyway, Roscoe, DMG Lumiere, however you call it, they make super cool RGB lights. They make RGB lights that tile together with really small seams, which is super useful. Um, they have a really wide color palette and selection. Also, if you ever meet them at NAB or Cinegear, or uh, I know this weekend they're going to be at Camera Image, which I've never been to and I can't wait to go someday. They're really nice people. It goes a long way. The DMG Lumiere folks are nice. They've made this cool thing called the Mixbook. And it is a little LED light that you hold in your hand. I happen to have an Anton Bauer battery in front of me. It's way smaller than the Anton Bauer battery in my hands. You control it with an app and it puts out whatever light you want. So why is this going to be useful? Here's the thing. It's not going to be useful in every scenario. If you are a tiny, tiny indie filmmaker and you're going out and everything you shoot, you have like a three light area kit or a three light aperture kit, three one twenties or whatever. This unit will not be useful to you. But as you start to climb in your career, you're going to start to have ambitions to do cooler stuff. And I think that there's going to be a place in a lot of workflows for this tool for two reasons. I think it's going to help art department decision-making. Like for instance, we've all, when you're trying to create like a very specific color in your final palette, Color in your final image isn't just about color grading. Color in your final image is about what is the object, what is the light on the object, and what is the sensor capturing the object. Those three things come together to give you, to give you something that you can feed to color grading. Let's say I knew I wanted to do some sort of crazy lighting scheme. You could take this mix book... You could dial in the lighting scheme. Let's say you're going very like heavy. You're going for a heavy double straw kind of thing. You could take this mix book, Home Depot or Lowe's or Menards, if you're in the Midwest, and shine it at all of the light paint chips in the arena. You could even take some paint chips and go to a dark room and shine this light on them. And you're going to get a much better sense of like, okay, if I've got 20 lights and I put this color gel on them, they're going to put out this kind of light. How, it's, how is it going to interact with the paint? Because it's not just about a paint color, it's about a paint color and how it interacts with lighting. So I wouldn't be surprised if a couple of art department people ended up buying a mixed book at some point or another so that a DP could theoretically say like, oh, hey, I'm going to be using this gel on tungsten units or I'm going to be using RGB lights and I'm going to be dialing them into this color. Then you've got that little source for you so you can check things as you go. How is that going to interact with light and makeup? You know, I could certainly see a scenario where you're doing some sort of crazy makeup effect and, you know, all of those, unless you're using the Hive Honey Mirror, um, there's going to be a lot of shout out to Hive today. <laughs> um, the Hive Honey Mirror, you're, you, you're usually using a makeup mirror that's fluorescent, but you could turn it off. You could turn your mix light on, your mix book, and you could see exactly how the scene lighting is going to look on the actor as you're doing the makeup. So I think it's pretty interesting in that arena. So I think it's got some uses for uh, hair and makeup and glam squad and art department to really be able to preview things that the DP is going to do so that they can interact more fully with it and really get a good sense of the preview for it. Right. Especially like, let's say you're shooting a project on the S1H. You can take your S1H with you to location and use the mix book and look at paint swatches on the actual sensor with the right lighting and get a much better sense. Cause we've all had that thing where we like picked out a paint and then on the wall, it didn't look the same because it's fluorescent lit at the hardware store. And, and actually, you know, I mentioned a bunch of hardware store chains, but use your local hardware store if you can. There's an Ace in my neighborhood, which is like a chain of franchises that I really like, and I get my paint there. So, you know, get your local paint there. But even that local Ace is fluorescent lit, and so the color paint chips in there are not going to look the same as they might look once I've really dialed in some sort of cool lighting scheme. So I think it's useful in that respect. The other respect it's useful is in ordering gels. And I know half of you are thinking, ordering gels, but... We're in this crazy new RGB universe. I don't order gels anymore. And it's like, well, actually, we still all do. I've yet to be on a shoot that's more than 50% RGB lights, uh, not the shoots I've been booking. Beyond that, 
there are things that it, it's not just about RGB light control. So, for instance, I did a shoot once. We were in this big office space. We had 50 feet of windows. And, you know, theoretically, because of color grading, you can always say, all right, well, I don't need to gel those windows to match the insides because I can fix it in post. But actually, that's really annoying to fix in post, right? Like, if I have a person standing in front of the window and it's blue light inside and then it's fluorescent light from the office on them and then I have a tungsten light on their face... It actually is a ton of work in color grading that unless I'm going for like a gritty 80s kind of like uh, Beetlejuice kind of depressing office space, I don't want to do that. So on a lot of jobs, we still gel windows because you want to make a nice environment. It's a happy office scene. You put some gels on the windows. You can match the daylight to the inside. You rebulb the fluorescence. You bring it all together on set. The ability to have something that really outputs the specific color temperature light you're going to use in this specific wavelength and really replicates all of the gels in the Roscoe thing, you can use that in conjunction with a color temperature meter. So instead of looking at these windows and saying to yourself, all right, well, what do I need to order? You could stick your arm out the window, shoot that unit through the window, sort of get a better sense of what you're going to be able to do. I mean, one scenario I think of is even saving, you know, when you're shooting in a, in a parking lot, parking lot lights have a variety of different colors. And uh, parking lot lights have a really discontinuous spectrum, so they're very hard to gel for. So maybe matching to a very specific parking lot light with the mix book and then experimenting with different gels. So let's say I was doing a night scene inside a car. I could experiment with like, all right, am I going to be able to create a light with the mix book that's going to match that? Because on the Scout, I probably won't have all my RGB units, but I can have the mix book with me and I can shine it on people's faces and I can get a sense of exactly what's going to be needed to match that ground truth because as an indie filmmaker there are a lot of times where i just don't have the manpower or the money to like rebulb every light in the parking lot rebulb every fluorescent in a grocery store but i'm still getting this wide shot and it's the ability to be there on set use my color temperature meter to to measure what's coming out of those fluorescents use the mic book to match it and then we're on a scout there's no actors with us but i ask someone else from the scout to stand in front of the camera and i shine the mix book on them and i see if i'm I'm getting a good match. And do I need to order things for a match? What kind of lighting units am I going to need? If it's an all tungsten show, what gels am I going to need to make that match? I think it's going to be a really interesting tool for those kind of scenarios. Yeah, so I'm kind of excited about the mixed book. I will say this, back in the day, I always used to have a kit bag from every menu, you know, in my old uh, ditty bag, which, God, I haven't taken to set in like 10 years. But I would always have like a Roscoe gel book and like a Gam Color gel book and a Lee gel book. And, you know, because some productions order from whoever, because whoever gives a discount or, you know, some co some companies' colors look a little different than other colors, even colors that are labeled the same. So I wonder if Roscoe has one, if we're going to see one from Lee or Gam. Probably not, because Roscoe's the only one of those that owns an LED company right now. But maybe... And that's pretty interesting. All right, so that is headline number one this week, Mixed Book by Roscoe. I think for certain filmmakers, it's going to be a handy-dandy little tool that's going to be kind of interesting. Number two this week in the headlines, Hive has completely redesigned their Shot app. So why do I mention this? First off, Lighting with Apps is my thing this fall. I'm doing a talk at Anorama on it a couple of weeks. I'm getting really into it. Um, it's a big, wide, open space. Secondly, I just wanted to talk about it because they did a really interesting thing. Hive, I mean, look. Full disclosure, I've known John Miller for probably 15 years, the founder of Hive, super nice guy. And I own a Hive. That backlight is a Hive Wasp 100C. Um, they did something kind of interesting. So they originally, in their app, you know, the app controls the light by Bluetooth. And I'm sure John would agree with what I'm about to say, which is Bluetooth is a terrible thing for controlling lights because you don't have a lot of distance. Like I will regularly, 
like walk to the other side of my tiny office and not be able to control the light. Bluetooth is not what you want. You want wireless DMX. The new wasps have wireless DMX, but all the hives have Bluetooth, so you can use Bluetooth to all the wasps have Bluetooth. You can use Bluetooth to control, and if you're close enough to the light, it totally works fine and it's great. But what's really interesting to me about that is their original app. They gave the app away for free, and then you could buy all these special little plugins like uh, cop car effects and firelight effects and stuff like that. Which is look, I mean, Hive is a small company. Uh, I'm not officially speaking for John here. I'm, I'm making some guesses, but you know, they started to make lights. Having to make an app is not what their specialty is, not what their expertise is. Having to support that app for all sorts of uh, different platforms is probably pretty expensive and annoying. If you're a lighting person, having to learn development techniques and agile and all of those things just to supervise your developers. I don't know if it's developed in-house or if they outsourced it, but like it's a whole, it's a different skill set than making lights. So they were trying to recoup some of that investment they had to put into making an app, which I get. However, the new Hiveshot app, everything in it is free. There are no internal purchases and upgrades. Now, to thank all the people who bought the old version, who bought the special things, they're giving away t-shirts. You send in your receipt, you get a t-shirt, which I think is really nice of them. But I also think it's really nice for them to just accept that, like, app's going to be free. And you're you're going to kind of bundle in everything into the app. I've been using the new shot app for two weeks, week and a half now. And uh, I've been pretty impressed. I find it to be more intuitive than the original shot app. But the bigger news for me is both that they're getting rid of the paid upgrades and now everything that it can do just comes in the app. And also they're thanking the people who paid for the previous upgrades with stuff. So I think that is all around a super nice thing of Hive to have done, and it's interesting that they are revising their shot app. I remain the world's biggest fan, and you're going to hear more about this in the next couple of weeks as I work on this lighting uh, with app presentation. I think everybody should just use Luminaire. Super nice folks over at Luminaire, and it's like an independent company that makes apps, and they don't have any of their own lights, so they should play with everybody. So the same way, like, you know, every camera manufacturer uses Lightroom. Uh, although, yes, I know Capture One exists, and Fuji has their own app. They're also easily supported by Lightroom. I, I would like the idea that everybody gives up on building their own app and puts all their effort into pushing everyone towards Luminaire. That's my personal take. As of today, as I keep testing for this presentation, I might change. All right, and the final bit of gear news. So this is the old CalDigit Tough. I don't have a new CalDigit Tough, but the final bit of gear news is the CalDigit Tough Nano. And I have to talk about this. A... Because in Gear Cage last week, I talked about the fact that everybody I know is just using a Samsung T5 as a working drive. But B, I'm a big fan of CalDigit. Uh, I'm not super, like, brand loyal. I mean, I guess I am. I shoot a lot of Fuji and Panasonic. But I shoot a lot of Red and Airy, too. I mean, you know, I just try and always use the best tool for the job. But one place where I've been very brand loyal is CalDigit. They've always, I've been, you know, I was buying the CalDigit VRs 10 years ago. I've been buying a lot of the tough drives. I like what they make. The company's always treated me really well and been very reliable. And I like the CalDigit Tough Nano 2 that just came out. It's like half the size of this SSD. And for $150, you get 512 gigabytes. There wasn't a one terabyte version yet, but I think there will be soon. But here's the key. First off, it's like waterproof, which like fine. The waterproof's kind of interesting. There's a little plug that you can close on it. So like when you leave it in your bag, if you spill coffee in your bag, or like it gets smushed against a banana in your bag. Like, I hope nobody's dropping their drives in the East River or in an aquarium. There's like a video on the website dropping it in an aquarium. Not that interesting to me. But I do think working drives end up in your book bag. Things get spilled on them. I like that it's waterproof for that respect. And then it's got a little plug on it. But far more interesting is the price benefit on speed. So this sucker offers read-write speeds up to 1,000 megabits a second, which is scorching fast. 
For reference, the Samsung T5, which I already consider super fast, is about 450 megabits per second tested with Blackmagic speed test. Now, you got to have the right computer to do it. It's got to be a USB-C connection, Thunderbolt 3 style connection. It's got to be the right cable that does it. I've actually switched between cables and noticed speed differences. But you have the right cable. You have the right computer that's capable of it. You get these blazing fast transfers out of the Samsung T5. And you get double that out of the CalDigit Tough Nano for 150 bucks, which is scorchingly good price. For reference, to get speeds like this a year ago, you needed to use the Atom Raid by Glyph, and it was literally two SSDs raided together for speed. So you're paying like $850, granted, for more storage, but that's how you get about 950 megabits per second. But hard drive speeds keep speeding up, and so now we're in a situation where you're really getting faster speeds. Uh, this is yet another good time to remind everybody that it's not always about the connection. Like, if I have a Thunderbolt 3 connection, but I'm going to a hard disk drive that only read writes like 100 megabits per second, it doesn't matter that it's a Thunderbolt 3 connection. Every once in a while, people will be like, but I bought the Thunderbolt 3 drive, and it's, but it's still a hard drive. It's not an SSD, so it's just not nearly as fast. But the CalDigit Tough Nano, waterproof, affordable, comes in four colors, and super duper fast so that was the last headline of the week i'm not going to throw away all my samsung t5 drives those will probably still be my default but my next job the working drive because usually what i do is i purchase like bare hard drives that are just like hard disk drives that go in a toaster to get my dailies and then i have a working drive for a project my guess my next project the working drive CalDigit tough nano no gear cage this week gear cage returns next week here we go hey professor First, hey, Professor, Chris County on Twitter just asked generally Twitter, and I saw it retweeted. What's the deal with shooting Hunter Orange? Even when I shoot raw, Hunter Orange doesn't look right. So if you're not from hunting country, Hunter Orange or Safety Orange is a highly saturated orange color that you see a lot of the time in hunting uh, world. So that like when you're out in the woods hunting, uh, it apparently can't be seen be can't be seen as easily by animals. You're not going to like scare the animals off, but other hunters will see you and not shoot you. Safety orange, it is sometimes called. It is a very bright orange color. It was also, before Orange is the New Black was a TV show, it was like a joke about fashion. Orange had a big year in like 1998 or 2001. I don't know. There was a year. Orange was everywhere. And like Hunter Safety Orange was one of those colors. You saw it a lot. Brave kids wore a lot of it. Why is it tricky to shoot this? And I'm actually going to say it's not just tricky to shoot this. It is tricky often on any super saturated color, even when you are shooting raw. Because here's the thing, even raw formats have a gamut. A gamut refers to all of the colors that the system is ready to write down a value for. So, you know, the very small gamuts, 601, 709, and then there's the bigger gamuts, 2020, and DCI-P3. DCI-P3 theoretically can record any of the uh, colors that humans can see, although it's based on like a sample set of humans from 1931, and there's probably some colors we can't see that aren't in DCI-P3. We're not going to worry about that right now. XYZ is all of the available colors. For every color in the scene, the sensor receives light values, and then it has to look at those light values and then map it to a recording color somewhere in that color spectrum. Even when you're shooting RAW, RAW is recording the RAW data values, but when you take those raw data values and map them into something viewable, you're always mapping them into some sort of color gamut, whether it's the color gamut of your monitor or the final video output or something, you're always mapping it into a color gamut. And there are some colors that are outside the most commonly used gamuts. And what happens, and safety orange, I th 
I mean, depending upon your safety orange and how brightly you've lit it, uh, what happens a lot of times with those colors is most systems, when they run into an out-of-gamut color, they just find the nearest in-gamut color and map it to that. If you've color graded and you've ever pushed something up to the top of the waveform monitor and you get like a flat line where all the the brightness erases, you can get the same thing with color, where as you push out to the edge of the color saturation, it flattens. And, you know, if you turn up the saturation all the way in a color grading platform, you'll see that where the color just flattens in. That's because there are no colors outside that area of the gamut. So it's flattening up at the edge of the space it can record. That is why super saturated colors are sometimes out of gamut and they look like flat. You start to lose detail. It looks bad. So what do you do about this? What do you do when you're trying to shoot this? So there's two things. One, saturation is a combination not just of color, but also of brightness. Blue at its most saturated is pretty dark. Yellow, and by extension orange, at their most saturated are pretty bright. So one thing you can do is you can try and put, like if it's like a still photo or a very posed thing, like if I was doing a job, in, if I was doing like an interview with a hunter and they were wearing their hunter orange jacket, you try and flag as much of the light off the jacket as you can so it's darker, because that darker will also make it less saturated, because orange-yellow saturates really bright, and as you make it darker, it will be less saturated. That's not even a sensor thing, that's just an aspect of the color. You could also maybe put a little cyan on your light because you know a color mixed with its opposite desaturates so if i was you know i might even put a special light on the hunting jacket and a little cyan a little darker flag down i make sure i've got nice natural light on the face that's gonna work fine in an interview but you know if i'm doing a scene and we're out in the woods and we've got hunters i'm not gonna be able to like have a little chase flag following them that's not really gonna work so what i have seen on production is for elements like this you buy a variety of garments and you test them to find which one works the best. And it's called teching down, T-E-C-H, where you'll sometimes wash them a lot or wash them with tea or soak them in a bathtub to try and take the edge off. And a lot of times what you'll find is like a desaturated orange. Like you'll look at it in your hands and you'll be like, ooh, this doesn't look hunter safe anymore. But because it's still right up at the edge of as saturated orange as you can get, it's going to look as good as possible within your final product. It's going to look as orange as your final product can look, but you've really dialed it in. So this is one of those cases, yet again, where testing, I mean, God, I feel like every week I talk about testing, but like, you know, you're doing a production, your lead character's a hunter, you're going to end up buying 20 of those safety orange vests, vests, teching them to each to a different level, doing a test with all of them and seeing which one puts you right up at the top edge of your saturation without going over so you maintain that detail. Because, you know, for it to still look like safety orange, you want it to be as saturated as it can be. You just want it, you don't want it out of gamut. You know, you can also grab it with a secondary once you're in post. The problem is, is once it's out of gamut at like the, it's not at the sensor, because sensor doesn't have a gamut, but like at the step where it gets put into a gamut, if it's out of gamut at that point, You've lost your detail. So putting in a secondary and like trying to desaturate it, you're just going to desaturate like a big flat space, which isn't what you're looking for. You're really looking to get texture out of it to have shape. So depending upon the production, I think you're probably going to have to shoot a bunch of tests with a variety of orange materials to try and get it where you want it. Coincidentally, way back in 2000, I worked on a movie with a scene with hunters in orange in it, and the director wanted to show the scene to his dad and his dad had like a brand new beautiful TV and we watched the scene and the, the orange jackets glowed and I remember asking the DP about it and like that first I was you know I was 19 or whatever that that was like the first conversation I had that led me down this like 20 year path of like manipulating color 
in images because I was like, wait a minute, that orange, that's not right. How do we, how do we make that right? What can we do to make that better? And uh, here we are. So that is my advice on shooting Hunter Orange in motion pictures. And then Charlene Wayne Wang, good old friend of mine, asked via email. And I swear to God, I just got this email two days ago and I said, can I make it a hey professor? She said, hey, I'm a DP. I would like to learn a little more color grading. What are the good tutorials and or books that are easy and simple? And I'm going to flat out use this as an opportunity to plug my book. My book, Color Grading 101, just came out from Focal Press. It is designed very much as a maybe you want to be a colorist. Maybe you're a director or DP and wants to understand the color process better. Here's the book for you. It is very much about like what are the things a person from another craft editor cinematographer director producer needs to understand about color to maybe do a little bit of it themselves and to really understand what a colorist is doing and how to interact with them better i think that if you want to be a colorist it should be a great book as a good starting process for you but it's really it's a it's a book about like storytelling with color and that's what i've really tried to focus on with color grading 101 charlene specifically asked hey are there any online tutorials? I don't learn well from online tutorials, so I can't say. But uh, if any of you does learn from online tutorials, please hit me up on Twitter with like what your tutorial favorites are so I can pass that on to Charlene. What are your favorite video tutorials for learning how to do these things? It is not the way I learn. It, my brain doesn't really work like that. I'm a, I, I like reading. But I know everybody learns differently. So if you have a favorite tutorial, hit me up on Twitter. So... That has been this week in the Week in Film Tech. If you're in New York, my Lighting with Apps then got rescheduled to November 20th because last week was uh, a wash. So Lighting with Apps, November 20th. Come check it out at Adorama. Subscribe to wherever you subscribe. Sign up on our mailing list. And I send out updates every Thursday of what we covered this week. And uh, tell all your friends about the Week in Film Tech. I will see everybody in a week. 